hello everyone tour guide tell all fans welcome back we're here for another episode and we this week first of all sorry i'm rebecca and i'm becca hi guys and we are the The rebecca's and we're here this week to talk about elections tour guide tell all style that's right we're gonna talk about elections that happened a long time ago we want to talk about elections past since we don't want to get too super political, uh, we'll get, well, we do, but we just want to get political about the past more than anything else, because that's where how we roll. I will say, at least in comment to, it is an election year 2020, and I think in contemporary times, it's very in vogue to sort of think that every modern election is the craziest election America's ever faced. And I feel like in my lifetime, I've certainly heard that. And certainly you and I have lived through at least one pretty insane election in 2000 in terms of being unusual. But any good historian knows that if you look back at America's elections, we have unusual elections, crazy elections, intense elections, most cycles, pretty much any time you've got people maneuvering for the highest office in the land, things get crazy. So I hope if you're listening to this and you thought, man, I have just lived through a crazy election, you can at least be comforted by the fact that there have been many in American history. Yeah, oh yeah, so many. Starting right from the very beginning, like... The 1800 election, Jefferson versus Adams, is insane. And someday we'll probably talk about that because it's a crazy town. I don't know. In a weird sort of way, like, I feel like it's, I mean, good. Like, you, it gets people interested, which is what we're supposed to be. You know, democracy requires participation. And there should be a lot of qualified people who want to hold the highest office in the land. And there should be fierce competition for the people who run this country, I think. Like, that's how the system works best is when we have the cream rising to the top or whatever that expression is. Um, but so we're going to we're gonna go back in time 108 years to put your Wayne's World music on. <laughs> I love that we both reached for the same, like, cultural thing. We're, we're generationally of, of a kind. Yes, we really are. <laughs> So we're going to talk about the election of 1912, which is a doozy. And there's a lot going on, you guys. And some of our favorite and least favorite characters in American history are going to play starring roles in what we're about to talk about. So 1912, let's do some context. Yeah, so I think before we're talking about the election of 1912, but to understand why 1912 goes down the way it does, we're going to go back to 1901 briefly. So in 1901, President William McKinley is assassinated by an anarchist named Leon Cholgash at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. His vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, becomes president. He is the youngest president ever in our history. Kennedy is the youngest elected president, but Teddy Roosevelt is actually not quite a year younger, several months younger, though, than Kennedy was. So we have this young, vigorous man, and certainly you say a lot of things about Teddy, but he's got vigor and energy. He comes into the White House, barrels in pretty early into McKinley's presidency, and he's going to fulfill the entirety of McKinley's term and then be handily reelected for a term of his own. Now, he could have run for a third term. We had no term limits. George Washington had sort of set a precedent of two terms. But Theodore Roosevelt certainly had the age. He had the health. He had the popularity. All of these things going for him. But he does something that is very foolish. He makes a promise, which, you know, presidents shouldn't do. (sighs) And literally, he makes the promise 
because he's running for re-election in 1904 and he's got all the press around him. And when he wins, like literally as he's celebrating his victory, one of the newspaper guys asks him, Mr. President, will you commit right now whether you're going to run in four years? And he says, no, I will. I will serve one more term and then be done. And you shouldn't do that. <laughs> the second it's out of his mouth. Literally the second, like, he he watches the words escape his mouth and wishes he could grab them and snatch them back. That's how quickly the regret happens. So he feels that he's made this pledge to the American people, and it would be very bad and poor form uh, of him to go back on this pledge. So 1908 rolls around, and he is very reluctantly going to step aside. And truly, if he had run in 1908, Theodore Roosevelt would have won handily again. It's not a lack of American voters not wanting Teddy Roosevelt at the helm. Um, certainly there's opposition parties, but he he would have easily won. But rather, because he had made this promise in you know four years prior, and he's a man of his word, and he's a man who believes that men need to do what they're going to say, and he has ambitions and things he wants to do outside of the presidency. So he's like, okay. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to like hand pick my successor. I'm going to make sure that whoever comes after me is going to continue on the path that I have forged. And he will tap a man named William Howard Taft, who we talk about extensively through the course of this podcast. I find William Howard Taft fascinating. We won't go into all the amazing ways he's fascinating, but he's an important player in our, our podcast today. William Howard Taft has held no previous elected position prior to this. Um, So he's not someone who's come up through Congress or come up through state government. He's a man who's sort of been uh, a party operative, part of the political party. Uh, He's somebody who really wants to see his career go towards judiciary, but rather Theodore Roosevelt is basically like, you are going to be my guy. And so William Howard Taft finds himself president of the United States in 1908. And he beats William Jennings Bryant, which if you have not listened to our William Jennings Bryant episode, definitely go back because it digs into a lot of what was happening in this early 20th century in terms of these presidential elections. Taft is totally seen as a Teddy puppet. Everybody in the press makes fun of this. You know, this kind of, it, it was like a nobody. Taft wasn't no one, but it was like, oh, you know, Teddy just picked this guy who's just going to do what he says. The press said that Taft was an acronym for take advice from Teddy. So there wasn't this idea that William Howard Taft was going to be his own man. And they've been friends forever. Like their families are kind of intertwined. They've known each other for a long, long time. And Taft is sort of plucked from obscurity by Teddy Roosevelt. Like he literally handpicks him. This is not an exaggeration to run for president in part because Teddy does think he can manipulate, not manipulate. Maybe that's too hard of a word, but coach. Yeah, coach is good. He also feels confident that Teddy has laid out a plan for the United States and that Taft is just going to follow this plan. Which is super, I don't know. I'm a big fan of Teddy Roosevelt. I am uh, very well. Like I'm, I'm a big, uh, he has his flaws. Sure. But I'm a fan of his, but this in this moment, I feel like he doesn't do right by Taft or the country. Like that's not how democracy is supposed to work. You have your agenda. If you want to further your agenda, run for reelection. You're not. Somebody else gets to do what they want to do. He almost puts Taft in the position that Taft ends up. He sort of almost forces Taft's hand where Taft then feels like I have to be my own man. I can't just do 
what Teddy Roosevelt tells me to do. Nobody's going to take me seriously. I won't have any power. I won't have any negotiation tactics if everyone thinks I'm just going to do what Teddy Roosevelt says. So what happens is Taft comes into office. Things are smooth for a little while, but increasingly he starts doing his own thing. He doesn't do everything Teddy wants, and he starts to split with Theodore Roosevelt over some really big issues, particularly Taft starts moving towards a more conservative perspective, particularly when it comes to supporting really high tariffs, when it comes to supporting big business over union and workers. And he is opposed to the popular election of judges, which is a big issue at this point in the country. So Taft is moving away from some of the more populist ideas that Theodore Roosevelt had embraced, and it's caused causing a rift not just between these two men as friends, but it causes a rift in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is starting to be pulled apart between progressives and conservatives, big business workers, um, and there's this class divide that's also starting to happen. And it's hard to overstate, I think, at this point, how powerful the Republican Party is. There has been one Democrat in the White House since the Civil War. Now, granted, it's Grover Cleveland, and he was elected twice, two separate non-consecutive terms but only one. So we're talking a good 50 years of complete Republican rule in the White House. And we're not, today, we're just not used to that. You know, we're used to the parties kind of change hands, go back and forth. They have for many years at this point. But in 1912, the Republicans have been in the White House for a long time. So the fact that the Republican Party is starting to split is... I feel like maybe not noticed as much as it otherwise would be. Well, and the Republican Party has gotten so big at this point from the turn of the century, the late 19th century into the 20th century. When we talk about them controlling the White House, the Republicans also frequently control Congress through the late 19th century into the 20th century. So you've got one party that's been in power for a long time, and the party sort of expanded to include a lot of different viewpoints. But now you have the president of the United States, who is the leader of the Republican Party, and then you have the very, very popular former Republican president, Theodore Roosevelt, starting to say, wait a second, this is not what I meant when I left. This is not what I wanted you to do. And by 1910, just two years into Taft's presidency, their friendship is over. There's a big rivalry. There's a big division. And this is really going to be a problem. Taft is going to start abandoning a lot of Roosevelt's program and policy ideas. And he starts rooting out Roosevelt Republican supporters in government, firing Roosevelt's hand-picked appointees. And so things are getting really, really tense in the Republican Party. The press jumps on this immediately because, like you were saying, this is kind of a big deal. And this has not occurred in the party in a long time. So the political cartoons and the the editorials and a lot of the newspapers, especially the Republican newspapers, are friendlier to Taft because he supports big business, which the newspapers also have a vested interest in. So you start to have this rift that is not just political, but starting to kind of make its way out into the culture. And you can also imagine this sort of friendship turned enemy narrative. It's tailor-made for the newspapers. Teddy Roosevelt's still quite young. He's only in his early 50s. Taft is sort of, um, he's not Teddy. I mean, Teddy's vigorous and young and Taft is like, gets stuck in a bathtub and kind of pokes fun at himself. Uh, 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 he does not get stuck in a bathtub. Please see, please see our YouTube channel it's for true. more. He does not. That's I true. I am a Taft, a Taft truther. But he's not Teddy. And I mean, Teddy, you know, God knows he never met a reporter he didn't want to talk to or subjects he didn't want to pontificate on. Whereas Taft is more calculated, more aloof with the press. And so it makes for juicy, juicy print. 
And then the 1910 midterms happen. And Theodore Roosevelt is out there campaigning, and he is promoting a brand new party platform for the Republicans. He's out there campaigning for progressive candidates. He's out there campaigning for Roosevelt Republicans, which puts him at odds with not just Tap, but other members of the Republican Party. And what happens in this midterm is the Democrats make big gains for the first time in a long time. They pick up quite a number of seats in Congress. So do third party candidates as well. So you're starting to have socialists and other third party figures picking up seats. So now all of a sudden, conservatives are becoming the outside party. And so this bickering at the top is now trickling down ballot and affecting the makeup of Congress. This puts Theodore Roosevelt kind of back into the midst of things after the midterm, because there's this question of, okay, well, the midterms happen. Two years is the presidential election. What are you going to do? And Theodore Roosevelt says, I do not think there is a one chance at a thousand that it will ever be wise to have me nominated. Which is not really a I don't want it answer. It's a I don't think politically this is a strong thing to do. But pretty quickly, he's going to turn that mentality around. And by early 1912, he's saying, if the nomination comes to me as genuine public movement, of course, I will accept it. So we've had quite a bit of a turnaround from Theodore Roosevelt. I would like to say also, like in the theme of there's nothing new under the sun, two things are interesting to me here. First of all, we all decry this time, you know, presidencies are four years and the midterms have usually been the starting gun for the president, the next presidential campaign. So somebody runs in 1908, Taft wins. The midterms in 1910 are like, as soon as they're over and the dust has cleared and the smoke has settled, that's the starting gun for the next presidential race in 1912. This has always been the case. This has been the case forever. And the other thing that is interesting to me here is watching politicians do the age old dance of, oh no, I don't want to run. Nope, 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 nope. Not thinking about it. Not at all. It's so distasteful to seek it. And yet you expect it to come your way. So again, there's nothing new under the sun. This is Tiara's playing the same coy game with the press that happens for the next century. is going to give us some presidential conventions. We're going to have party conventions. And we have done a couple episodes on these. So if you want to dig into more like inter-party politics and whatnot, check out the Henry Clay and the William Jennings Bryant episode. What makes 1912 a really interesting year is this is one of the first years where we see big push in the parties to have primaries. Prior to this, there were not really a lot of states having primaries and caucuses, which now we know is a huge part of the lead up to a convention, and just about every state has a primary or a caucus. This was one of the first times that this happens, and in the Republican Party in particular, the primary is really interesting because you do have over the course of the Taft presidency, a lot of debate about what is the Republican Party? Are we the party of Roosevelt? Are we the party of Taft? Are we something else? So we have 12 states that hold Republican primaries. The candidates are William Howard Taft. He's the incumbent. He's thinking, okay, I should win the Republican nomination pretty easily. But then we have Theodore Roosevelt, who has put his hat into the ring. And then we have a man named Senator Robert LaFollette. These are sort of the two or the two big challengers to Taft. The primary season starts. Theodore Roosevelt starts to say publicly, if I don't win the Republican nomination, I will run as an independent. So he starts doing that dance that, again, everything old is new again. 
that, well, if the party isn't going to put me forward, I'm going to have to run outside of the party and that could hurt us. And he says this just after like the first primary. So as things are gearing up to go, uh, they don't quite have Super Tuesday yet. But imagine it's like almost Super Tuesday. And now Theodore Roosevelt is putting out a threat of a third party run. And surprisingly, not surprisingly at all, he wins nine of the 10 final primaries because the Republican Party is really concerned about Theodore Roosevelt with all of his popularity breaking off. And he's also the middle candidate, too. La Follette is a very strong progressive from Wisconsin, and he's been a very, like, real true blue progressive, and Taft is a little more conservative. So TR is popular, and he's seen as sort of the middle road between these two wings of the party that are, like, jockeying for position basically in real time. So he's kind of the compromise. And so the convention is held in Chicago in June of 1912. And Theodore Roosevelt goes in with the primaries, uh, having the most delegates from the primaries. But there were a lot of uncommitted delegates because not every state had had a primary. So there were a lot of delegates on the table. So very quickly, Taft gained support from most of the uncommitted delegates. He's seen as the incumbent. That brings just with it a lot of weight, usually for a renomination. He's popular with big parts of the Republican Party, particularly business and industry. And so all of a sudden, Teddy Roosevelt rides into town. He's like, look at all these delegates I got from the primaries. But then he shows up and Taft, who's not even there. This is like before you would actually go to the convention. Taft supporters have picked up every uncommitted delegate. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt doesn't take this lying down. He accuses Taft of vote theft. He accuses him of bribery, accuses him of all sorts of things. Teddy Roosevelt is there at the convention. He's really banking on his star power, his charisma, his celebrity to pick him up. But first ballot and Taft wins very easily. He's renominated on the very first ballot. So for all of TR's bluster, for all of his success in the primaries on the campaign trail, when it came to the convention hall, whether it is purely Taft's own popularity, or it's the machinations of the Republican Party, Theodore Roosevelt is out. He does not get the Republican nomination. And he does not handle this particularly well. Immediately, immediately at the convention, he announces the formation of a new party. And he says this new party is going to be to the service of all people. And he says, we're going to have our own convention in a few weeks. And then Taft turns around and he'll give an acceptance speech after officially becoming the Republican nominee. But then Taft makes a decision which in this cusp between the 19th century and 20th century makes sense, but to modern ears is weird. Taft decides he's not going to go campaign personally. That's the way it was done in the 1800s. Into the early 1900s, presidents didn't really go out and campaign themselves. You had supporters, you had surrogates who did that. But we are in the modern era, and Teddy Roosevelt's been out there campaigning essentially for the last two years, but Taft decides, no, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way, and I'm not going to, I will give my acceptance speech, and that will be the last time I'm out in the American public. And that is, spoilers, a foolish, foolish decision. Yeah, it's not a great plan there. TR is really remaking the way that we conceive of running for president and he's going to bring it to people in campaign and Taft is just not he's first of all he's not that guy like he just doesn't have that in him and second of all he wants to like he's very old school in this way and doesn't want to campaign in front of people so now at this point you've got Taft has been nominated as the Republican nominee 
And Teddy Roosevelt has decided that he's going to run as a separate candidate. So he's going to form his own party. <laughs> and we're going to put a pin in him for a minute and come back to him in a little bit. We're going to talk about the Democrats. So Baltimore is where their convention is in June. And the front runner, it was the Speaker of the House, Champ Clark, which, gosh, I wish we had a president named Champ. What a great name, Champ Clark. I know. That seems like he should be president. And he wins a bunch of early ballots, but just can't quite get a majority to sort of get him over the hump to be the nominee. And then the Tammany Hall machine in New York is going to come out publicly in support of him. And that's not great because Tammany Hall is basically corruption. And there was a time where the Tammany Hall machine made decisions for the party. But at this point, we've gone beyond that. And Tammany Hall has been really exposed for being extremely corrupt. And their endorsement is not good. It's not helpful to Champ Clark. William Jennings Bryan is not going to run. And instead, like we talked about in the pod about him, he's going to decide to play Kingmaker. And this really pisses him off. William Jennings Bryan is all about transparency. He's about reforming campaign finance and things like that. And so he is going to see Tammany Hall's endorsement of Speaker Clark as a bad sign. And he's going to withdraw his support. He rejects Champ Clark and throws his support behind Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is a reformer. He is at that time the governor of New Jersey. Although he hadn't been for very long, which I find interesting. You know, we talk about playing kingmaker. He really plucked somebody who other party leaders might have said needed another five or six years. Yes, he needs a little more maturing. Um, He had not been governor of New Jersey that long, I think two years, two or three years. He had been a head of Princeton University. He was an academic before that. And... He just throws his support behind Woodrow Wilson. They're going to go back and forth several ballots. Wilson's basically about ready to give up and free his own delegates. But Brian's support keeps Wilson relevant in this race. And after 46 ballots, 46, eventually Woodrow Wilson is the nominee. (sighs) So you sort of already have this situation where the two major parties are putting forth nominees that are sort of in some ways compromised candidates or seen as the best case scenario for our party as opposed to somebody who the entire party is really rallying around. I mean, 46 ballots does not show that there was a huge faith in the party that he could win this, that he could be a viable, strong candidate against Taft. And they should, at this point, the Republican Party, the Republican convention has happened. So they know that things are split in the Republican Party and they want, like I would imagine, they want to put their best foot forward in terms of somebody who can really win this, which to me would have been William Jennings Bryan, but he doesn't want it. Uh, And so Woodrow Wilson steps into the breach and becomes the compromise candidate. And because the Republican Party is fracturing, he is going to instantly be the front runner in this race. Now, across town, I should say across town, back to the Republican convention, when Roosevelt says, okay, I'm going to form my own party and we're going to have a convention, he literally just starts gathering up supporters and he's like, let's go across town and make this happen. And so that's what Roosevelt does. Roosevelt's like, we're ditching this convention. If you support me, come with me. And this is how the National Progressive Party 
is formed. The platform is much more progressive than the Republican Party platform. One of their biggest campaign points, uh, planks of their platform is going to be to increase federal regulation across the board for industries and really to protect the welfare of the American worker and the average American citizen. Teddy Roosevelt is going to give this really passionate speech about what the Progressive Party is to him. And he really describes this 1912 election as an Armageddon. And he sees himself and those supporting him as battling for the Lord. They see this as a fight for the soul of America. And it's sort of just interesting to me. So what I think you also have is a man who had almost a full eight years in the White House did what he could. But I think the way so many presidents feel is you leave and you go, oh my gosh, there's still so much to be done. And I feel like you kind of like, it takes you two years to just kind of get your feet under you and like figure out where your office is and how things really work. And then you leave just as you're starting to get good at it, I feel like. And I love the image of TR. Okay, this convention isn't working. Let's blow this popsicle stand. We're just going to find our own, make our own convention. And then that's exactly what he does. At this point, you're going into the general election. You've got the incumbent president who has held the presidency basically since the Civil War. You have a long shot candidate from a party that is still struggling to gain any power at all, who is also the candidate himself is basically unknown outside of the Northeast. And you have one of the most popular former presidents in American history running as a third party candidate. So that's kind of why I feel like this election is so interesting because you have three very different and distinct characters. Wilson, Taft, and Roosevelt are all extraordinarily fascinating men. And they all like meet in this moment together at the dawn of really the modern presidency and sort of the how political campaigns run at this point and it's just so very interesting to have the three of them and you also have by the way it's worth mentioning eugene debs is running from the socialist party so you have four men running for president and certainly at this point eugene debs would be more of a traditional third party candidate not likely to win any states if not many of them but the socialist party at this point in 1912 is almost the biggest it's ever been in the United States at this point. There are a lot of registered socialist voters. They have done well supporting candidates on local and state level. And that means that if you are running on any sort of progressive platform, you risk losing some of your supporters to the Socialist Party. And Eugene Debs is well-liked and well-respected. And so he certainly, while it's uh, even from the get-go, unlikely he's ever going to win anything meaningful electorally. He could certainly spoil either Wilson as a reformer or spoil Roosevelt as a progressive. And Eugene Jeffs is a fascinating guy too. This is before socialism has become a dirty word in the United States. We're still six years away from the Russian Revolution and the Soviets taking over. Uh, and our conception of socialism goes south when Russia becomes the Soviet Union. That has not happened yet. So socialists are not, I mean, they're not mainstreamed at all, but they're not like the boogeyman yet either. I mean, this is really as labor is coming to the height of its power and influence in politics. So there's a lot happening in this election. It's just amazing to me because in any other breakdown, you'd go, well, whoever the third party candidate, the new party, they're going to be at a disadvantage. But that's Theodore freaking Roosevelt, man. And to Theodore Roosevelt, the Progressive Party, it's called the National Progressive Party, but it instantly becomes known and has always been known as the Bull Moose Party because Theodore Roosevelt is the Bull Moose 
which literally he is. This is truly, though, I mean, it's a party built around a single person and a single candidate. You know, they're calling it the National Progressive Party. Yes, he has other supporters that he brings along, but this is really a party that has been built around a single person and their quest to go back to the White House. So this is, we're entering into what will be a pretty intense campaign. campaigns are done differently in this time. So as the campaign really starts in the summer, you only have one candidate who's really out there going town to town, state to state, and that's Theodore Roosevelt. Taft has surrogates and supporters and Taft's doing kind of the party maneuvering that you do, uh, talking to your governors and your members of Congress in the states you need to win. But Taft isn't out there. He's president, so he gets coverage as president, but he's not campaigning. Woodrow Wilson is, but certainly not on the scale that Theodore Roosevelt is. And Woodrow Wilson is savvy in that he understands the power of new media. So he's targeting things like radio and starting to understand how that can be a venue as well. But if you were to kind of be like, who's out campaigning in 1912? It's really just Teddy going on a train just around, around, around. I feel like Woodrow Wilson is so smart in this moment because he just kind of like sits back and lets the other two duke it out and is like, do, 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 I'll just hang out here and be normal and you guys fight it out and I'll be fine, which is basically kind of what happens. Yeah, and I mean, Wilson doesn't have, nobody has Teddy Roosevelt's charisma, but Wilson really doesn't have it. And Wilson would not be served by doing what TR is doing, which is group events and big speeches. Wilson is much better um, sort of putting out his platform and he continues to just run that, you know, we Democrats here, we're small government uh, at this time. We're focusing on the individual. We're skeptical of too much government intervention in our life. We would be better served by reform. And he just kind of knocks the party line over and over again on the radio and in print. And he doesn't bother trying to glad hand people because he's not good at it. No, he's terrible at it. And TR is like Teddy Roosevelt is all over the country. And he claims that the he was robbed of the Republican nomination, that the, the party's been stolen, which is ironic considering he's the guy who put Taft up as president in the first place. Taft is going to stay back in the White House and kind of just whispers in the ear of the Washington press corps that... You know, Roosevelt's, boy, he's a little uh, power hungry there, isn't he? Yeah, he's um, a lot of personality there. I don't know. Seems a little. And you got a lot of these big industrialists who own newspapers, and they're worried about what a TR presidency now could mean. What could it mean in terms of regulation and taxing, taxation? And so you've got big newspapers that are benefited by portraying Teddy Roosevelt as power mad, as a man who's become radicalized. You know, so if you're big media, you're kind of into what Taft's selling. Absolutely. He's like whispering to the newspapers, hey, nice newspaper you got there. Be a shame if, uh, you know, something happened to it. Teddy Roosevelt's not great. Thanks. Woodrow Wilson is going to run sort of a more staid, very different campaign. He seems very cold and aloof. And you just look at pictures of him and he kind of, you can see it even in the picture. TR is vibrant. He's active. He's got a charisma that you just can't fake. Like it comes through even in the pictures of him. If you listen to his voice and there are very early wax cylinders of him giving speeches, you can hear the like dynamism in his affect. He's just 
I mean, he's Teddy Roosevelt. He's just larger than life, literally. And so you're we're heading down the stretch towards the election. Let me just, I'll say one more thing really quickly about Wilson's campaign. We talk about the silent majority a lot in regards to Nixon and the election of 1968. But I think Wilson in 1912 is sort of targeting and understanding that there is a silent majority. There are a lot of working class to middle class white men, because that's who votes right now. Women don't have the vote. There's a lot of voter voter disenfranchisement if you're of color. And he's saying, look, I'm here to help you. I want to get government out of your way. And I want to help you do it. But I, I don't want to do any of this crazy social reform that we're hearing about. I'm not here to, you know, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Teddy's talking about some things that are Little, little left, a little crazy. Not so much left, but a little progressive. And Wilson sort of hits, I think, the average white working class to middle class male who's going, okay, well, I'm not served by anything Taft selling because I'm not a millionaire and I'm not in big business, but I'm a little afraid of what Teddy Roosevelt's pushing. And I think that the Republican Party lose it, had lost sight with the split of a lot of people, a lot of voters in this era. And it would have been a very different election if women could vote, if there hadn't been as much voter suppression for sure. But Wilson and the Democratic Party, I think, savvily targets what we would consider kind of a silent majority. I absolutely think that that's true. I have long thought that if women could vote in 1912, there never would have been a President Wilson. No wonder he opposes suffrage. Yeah, right? Oh my God. He he really does appeal to the people who feel like things are moving a little too fast. And Teddy Roosevelt's got good ideas, but I don't know. He's moving a little fast there. And Taft is kind of yesterday's news. And and people are getting, they're, they're skeptical of government. And they're, they're looking around and going, well, the, you know, the guys on the top have plenty of money. So they're looking that the, what Wilson is selling, they are buying. And he doesn't have to give big speeches and do big campaign rallies to get that point across. And he also, there's a point of Wilson where I feel like, and this is kind of controversial, but I hate Wilson the most. Everyone knows it. He also winks at, oh, you know, if we don't go down this progressive road, who knows who else might get the vote? And I feel like there's this real idea of like, well, you got to protect what's yours and appeal to the silent majority, appeal to the fact that right now it's just about only white men who are voting. And so I feel like there's a lot of that, like Wilson doesn't, Wilson kind of hangs out with and is cozy with some people who who are very much involved in uh, the sort of racial discrimination and Jim Crow stuff that's happening in the South. Wilson himself actually is a Southerner. He's born in Virginia. Uh, So I feel like there's that racial element as well. And so that brings us to October 14th, 1912. Yes. So you've got Theodore Roosevelt. He's out there, a man among the people. He's campaigning. It's October 14th, which is, we're just shy of the anniversary of this. So just a few days ago was the anniversary. He is in Milwaukee and he is giving a speech when a man named John Shrank is going to fire a bullet at him. And Shrank's got good aim mm-hmm. and it goes right into Theodore Roosevelt's chest. Yes. This is not an assassination story because luckily for us, Teddy Roosevelt has in his pockets his eyeglass case and a 50-page speech that is folded in half. So that's how long these campaign speeches were back then. And so the bullet goes through the speech in the eyeglass case. So it is slowed and it's entering in Theodore Roosevelt's body. And I don't know, Rebecca, what I would do if I was shot in this circumstance. 
I don't think I would do what Teddy does. Teddy, oh my God, he, this is one of the most badass no things I feel like in American politics. Like, no joke. Teddy looks down, realizes he is not coughing up blood. And if he's not, that means that the bullet didn't reach his lungs, which he's correct about. That's true. It does not. And he's like, okay, I'll just keep on going. And he gives the speech. And, of course, you know, this man has shot him, like, in the middle of this crowd. That You know, the mob is descending on this man. And Teddy Roosevelt's like, no, don't hurt him. Don't Great. let the police do their thing. Like, so he basically keeps the mob from killing this man. Uh, Shrank would claim that the ghost of William McKinley ordered him to do it. McKinley's revenge on TR. Outstanding. So, yeah, Shrank is clearly not well. <laughs> um, like, spoiler alert, he's not a well man. And T.R. doesn't leave. He gets up and he continues to give the speech. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. And of course, this brings the house down. And he doesn't, he kind of is a little, I think, more subdued than maybe he normally is. But he stands up there and he speaks for 90 minutes before he leaves and goes to see a doctor, which is insane to me. Like, he doesn't know what's going on internally. He doesn't actually, like, he pulls out his speech and it's got a bullet hole in it, which is amazing. And I, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's just no, there aren't too many more gutsy moves in American public life than what Teddy Roosevelt does at this moment. Like, he just stands up there and continues to give this speech. And of course... It makes huge headlines. Like, this is a big deal. Not only that he's been shot, but, like, the idea that he, like, stayed there and gave the speech. Like, he becomes the hero in all of this. Rather than the victim, he's the hero. And this is, to just illustrate how crazy the 1912 election is, this is three weeks before Election Day. So you have a candidate that's been, there's been an assassination attempt three weeks before the election. The man survives with a bullet inside of him. And basically the doctors are like, eh. If we try to take it out, it's going to be more problem. So he lives the rest of his life with that bullet inside of him. And now if you're Taft or Wilson, you have a decision to make. Do you suspend your campaign out of respect? Do you take time off from campaigning? So they kind of, that's what they have to do. Taft and Wilson were like, oh, I guess out of deference to Teddy, we'll scale back our public campaigning because now you're going to look like a real jerk if you're talking to the press about how bad his policies are or how bad you think he'll be for the, the country. And Teddy is basically forced to take a two-week break. So right as we're coming up to Election Day, everything sort of stops. Right, for two whole weeks. That's the time. I mean, certainly like we're recording this in an October of an election year. That's the time where you're out there doing speeches, doing ads. These are your undecided voters getting them. And everybody kind of stops because of Teddy. It's kind of amazing. They just hit the pause button. And my in my imagination, they must have had to practically tie Teddy Roosevelt to his hospital bed in order to prevent him from getting up. Because Teddy Roosevelt's the kind of guy, like, the soon as he can stand up, will want to disregard the doctor's orders and go back out there. And I don't know how they managed to keep him quiet for two whole weeks right before an election, but somehow they must have wrestled him to the ground or something. I don't know, but they did. So the campaign like pauses, like we're in suspended animation for two weeks, which is not normal and very weird. It's not normal. It's not what we think of for a campaign. And then just as things are starting to gear back up at the end of October, William Howard Taft is at dinner. He's at dinner just enjoying himself. And uh, somebody goes, Mr. President, I have news for you. And the news is that his vice president, his running mate, is a man named James Sherman, 
And Sherman died. Sherman had Bright's disease. He was already kind of in poor health, but it just made sense to renominate him, sort of figuring that if he didn't live through the second term, they could just appoint someone to replace him. So literally like six days before people are going to go vote, the Republican vice presidential candidate is dead. So there's a dead man's name on this ballot. And Taft is sort of like not sure what to do. And so the party sort of scrambles and they find a man named Nicholas Butler who they decide will receive the votes. They sort of kind of go into it with um, a game plan of this will be the man who's going to be Sherman's replacement. Butler is a pretty impressive figure. He was president of Columbia University. He's a Nobel Prize recipient. He was so respected in his life that every year the New York Times would print his Christmas greeting to the nation. But it's too late in this election for this to make any difference. But it's not often that you have somebody on the ballot in a presidential election who dies so soon before election day that it's just like 1912 was off the rails. This is why we're talking about this. You've got three fascinating men running for president. You have one of them who's just been shot. The other one who just loses his running mate. It's insane. So it's November 5th, 1912. It is election day. This is the first election in American history where all 48 contiguous states are voting. So this is the first time all of continental U.S. will cast its ballot. So this is exciting. We have states that are voting that haven't voted before. And, you know, there's really no nobody knows for sure. Conventional wisdom in the press is that Taft is the incumbent and that ultimately he is going to pull out a victory. Of course, the many papers have a vested interest in Taft winning, so they're going to say that. But it breaks out pretty badly for William Howard Taft. Yeah, the polls are wrong, guys. Polls are very <laughs> wrong. Taft ends up with eight electoral votes. Not eight states, guys. Eight electoral votes. That is Utah and Vermont. Which neither of those are powerhouse states in 1912. And you wouldn't think that Vermont and Utah would go for the same person like in any universe ever. So Taft has the worst performance of any incumbent ever in American history in an election. So it is a slaughtering. It is bad. So awful. I feel so bad in this moment for William Howard Taft. He didn't really want to do this, and now he's doing it, and he's just getting lambasted on the national stage. It's terrible. Theodore Roosevelt does very well. In fact, he does the best that a third party candidate has done in American history. He's the only third party candidate to outperform a Democrat or Republican on the presidential ticket. He receives 88 electoral votes, which is Compared to Taft, I mean, it clearly shows, at least in the Republican Party, who's got the power and who's got the interest. And it's it's Roosevelt. The Republican Party is really the progressive party at this moment in this election. He wins six states. His most populous state in terms of electoral votes is Pennsylvania. So Teddy Roosevelt does well. But if you guys uh, are doing the math, 88 plus 8 is not, not, not a lot. It's 96. <laughs> It's 96 electoral votes, which leaves a lot on the table. And they all go to Woodrow Wilson. They all go to Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson ends up with 435 electoral votes. It's so which many. Is insane. It's 40 states. He only wins 41% of the popular vote, which is the lowest percentage for any president of the United States since 1860. So since Lincoln. And that's right up until today. And that's a landslide. Like, that's insane. He picks up states that haven't voted Democrat since the Civil War, 
Massachusetts. This is the first time they go Democratic. Good times. And he is only the second Democrat since the Civil War to win the White House. And there won't be another until 1932. So between the Civil War and the Great Depression, there are two men, two Democrats, who are in the White House. Grover Cleveland and Woodrow Wilson. So it's a huge win for the party. Huge. This is really big for the Democratic Party. And I think Woodrow Wilson is is certainly benefited by the midterms in 1910. He's benefited by the fact that there had been some party shifting. But I think he speaks to, we talked about this, the silent majority. He speaks to places in the country that are feeling left behind. And he, he benefits from this rift in the Republican Party, and he benefits from the circus. There is so much ink spilled and so much time and energy on Taft and Teddy and their relationship and their friendship and who's right and who's wrong. And Wilson just keeps drumming his message over and over again, and it works. And I should mention that Eugene Debs gets almost a million votes, which is really impressive for a third-party candidate in this era and certainly impressive for the Socialist Party. And you could certainly see, I don't think it makes the difference in the election per se, but I think that it definitely makes a difference in some states where Teddy might have picked up another state or two. And it just goes to show in 1912 that there is fracturing, they're splintering. We're starting to see a reshuffling of political parties and political loyalty. Uh, we're starting to see various groups, labor, voters of color, women, as they're really in the, the last several years fight for suffrage. We're seeing in 1912 a reshuffling of where people are going to fall politically and who they're going to start supporting politically in terms of party. And it's also such an interesting moment because you have so many progressive reforms women's suffrage is coming. You've got, you know, a lot of labor reforms. And you've also got this real conservative streak. This is also the point where we're really entrenching the sort of racial divisions in the South. The Jim Crow laws are really uh, very firmly entrenched by this point. You also have prohibition, which is coming down the pike at this point. And people are advocating for it uh, in 1912, which is very much a reaction to a lot of these sort of immigration forces. Uh, people are coming from abroad. So you've got this very, we're clearly seeing progress, but you also, and I think Wilson speaks very clearly to a lot of people who are very terrified at the progress that's being made at who is getting more of a say uh, and he sort of speaks to a lot of this sort of nativist um, anglo-saxon uh, white uh, element the silent very much the silent majority wilson is very much going to be their champion and that is how woodrow wilson becomes president it's a path that could have only happened this way he couldn't have done it and he wouldn't have, the, the party wouldn't have nominated him in, in a different time or different situation. He couldn't have won so handily without this split and this challenge. And so this election is so vital in our history because it really is this break, this turning point, this moment. It definitely also starts to raise the specter of a third term president. You know, Teddy Roosevelt obviously doesn't come anywhere close electorally, but he's so popular and, it, you know, he certainly, it could be argued that it was well worth him attempting the run. And so people are starting to go, okay, what happens when we have a president that popular who can win the third term and a fourth term and a fifth term and an indefinite term? And the question becomes less hypothetical not too long after 
because we have Franklin D. Roosevelt not even 20 years after this election coming into office and then all of a sudden he runs for that third term and that fourth term and then we see ourselves staring down the 22nd amendment so it's not all that long from theodore roosevelt's third term run attempt to the 22nd amendment you can see the straight line too what i think is one of the most interesting legacies of the 1912 election is sort of what didn't happen in terms of the war so less than two years after this election europe is in the first world war and Wilson does a very admirable job of keeping us out of the war as long as possible. He really does not want to get involved. Uh, had Teddy Roosevelt won the election, Teddy Roosevelt was all about fighting in a war. Like that was his big thing. He thought that's how you proved yourself and that he was oh, spoiling for a fight. And had, I think, and there's obviously no way to prove this, but had he won and been president when Europe plunges itself into war, I imagine he would have found an excuse to get American troops over uh, to fight in Europe as soon as humanly possible. So we World War One, our World War One experience would be very different, I feel like. Yeah, so, uh, certainly, uh, 100%. It's also interesting because Wilson so handily wins this election, and yet four years later when he runs for re-election in 1916, which we honestly should do an episode on as well, he wins by one of the smallest margins ever in American history. So he comes in with what may seem like a mandate, like the country sort of overwhelmingly or electorally wants this guy. But remember, he only got like 40% of the popular vote. Wilson has a tough time. Uh, and he certainly has a tough time because of World War One brewing and all these other things. But he's going to have a really tough election in 1916. And he just barely squeaks it out. So he, it's really, when you look at these two elections back to back, it's sort of like they're both really dramatic in different ways. But again, just all elections, I think, are dramatic and interesting for the most part. Yes, that's certainly, certainly true. And then we get stuck with Woodrow Wilson, and that's... And someday Rebecca promises to do her Why She Hates Woodrow Wilson special episode for our patrons. So many reasons. Yes. Oh, yeah, I think I'd, I'll, I'll put that together hopefully this month to go along with this. A request from Miss Jeffries, one of our favorite teachers. Who comes, who comes to visit us. So a few things. Um, you definitely can get a little bit of Taft, Roosevelt, and Wilson history in Washington, D.C. Of course, you can visit the White House and the White House Visitor Center. The Smithsonian National Museum of American History has an incredible exhibit on the American presidency uh, with artifacts belonging to all three of those presidents, among many others. You can also visit the Woodrow Wilson House in Washington, D.C. It's just off of Embassy Road, just off of Massachusetts Avenue. This is the house that Woodrow Wilson bought while he was president of the United States uh, to be the home with his second wife, he and uh, Edith Bowling Galt Wilson. Uh, he only lives in the house for three years from the time his presidency ends in 1921 till he dies. In 1924, his widow Edith keeps the house basically exactly as it was and turns it over to a national trust after she dies. So it's a really well-preserved historic house. It's got a lot of uh, really interesting hi history from the Wilson era. I think it's kind of a great little hidden gem in D.C. People don't always know about it. If you are local and listening to this podcast, they have been doing special outdoor exhibitions right now. Uh, right now it's on suffering. They've got other stuff that's going to be about the Wilson presidency. They're also doing a lot of virtual events, including a virtual vintage board game night, which is 
my favorite in-person event that they do there, and they're making it virtual. So uh, we love uh, the Woodrow Wilson House. Uh, they're great people. They're really interesting. It's a really interesting historic site, and they do cool stuff. So check it out. Check them out online or check them out in person if you're a local. Yes, and you can also visit two of the three stars of this episode are buried in the D.C. area. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is not. He's buried in New York State, where he was from. Uh, but uh, William Howard Taft is buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, and Woodrow Wilson. Wilson is the only president of the United States to be buried inside the capital city. He is buried at National Cathedral. Yeah, Ar- Arlington National Cemetery at the time of where we're recording this is open to small small group visit, individual visits. Uh, Taft is very easy to locate. You don't have to walk too far. And he's not too far from Kennedy, the other president buried at Arlington. So uh, you can visit our website and we'll put it in our show notes. Uh, we have a self-guided tour of Arlington that includes on the map where to find Taft. It's very easy to locate. Oh, man, talking about this election just has, like, relaxed me. <laughs> Elections are crazy, guys. That's what you need to know from a historian's perspective. They're always crazy. And everybody gets so amped up, and it's like it's like watching a soccer match. Like, you can't pause the clock, and, like, everybody kind of goes insane because you have to make all these important decisions, and they're super critical, and you're under a time crunch, and the fate of the world depends on it and so you get so many people who get so amped up and it's nothing new people do crazy things in the ramp up to an election it's um it's always been this way and it's it's kind of what makes it interesting but also really really nerve-wracking too So that was our episode. Thank you for listening to Tour Guide Tell All. If you liked what you're hearing, please be sure to subscribe and to rate and review us on your favorite podcast channel. We also love to hear from our uh, listeners. If you have suggestions, questions, comments, feedback, anything at all, you can email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com or catch us on the internet. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at tourguidetellall or you can find us on Twitter at tourguidetell. Uh, If you want to further support the pod, uh, the best way to support us is to like and subscribe on your favorite favorite podcast app. But if you want to further support us monetarily, we are on Patreon. We love our Patreon supporters. They're really the backbone of the operation. Uh, Patreon at Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, You get special goodies and bonus content, including uh, the reasons why I hate Woodrow Wilson, which is going to be coming out at some point in November, uh, and uh, all sorts of fun stuff. And uh, you get a discount on our merch store. We have merch. It's very cool. Um, And yeah. It's getting to be that holiday season. You know, it's only so many weeks till Christmas. You got to get that cool Tour Guide Tell All merch. Your favorite history nerd needs something from Tour Guide Tell All, you guys. We've got everything from stocking stuffers to home decor to clothing. That's true. We do. Um, But thank you guys so very much for coming along with us. Um, Election uh, Tour Guide Tell All style. Uh, We are going to be back next week. And we're going to be talking about someone who is... One of our sassy. badass ladies, sassy um, and wild, sassy and wild. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll do a little a little a little teaser, teaser for next week. Love it. We're gonna have art. We're gonna have explorers. We're gonna have erotic poetry. And we're a gonna May have December actors. <laughs> it's gonna be crazy. We're gonna have architects, it's but not be the wild. kind of May December romance you're thinking. Just gonna <laughs> leave it there. Okay. So be sure to tune in next week. Uh, Until then, thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Tour Guide Tell All is researched, recorded, edited, and mixed by 
Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and Candon Arseniega. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. Help support us and get some special perks by becoming a patron. And if you don't want to sign up for our monthly commitment, you can also send us a virtual tip on Venmo at Tour Guide Tell All, or get some Tour Guide Tell All swag from the merch store, all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.